All right, thank you, brother. Yeah, so uh, welcome to Foundations. Uh, my name is Babatunde Aliogena, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, so today, we are in Foundations looking at this uh, doctrine, the study on elders and deacons. Um, so, you know, Foundations, it's really a kind of systematic theology of all these great doctrines of the Bible. Uh, we've studied numerous doctrines, and even this semester looked at things uh, like membership. We've uh, considered uh, the ordinances, the Lord's ordinances. Uh, so today we're looking at elders and deacons. Um, so there, I'm sure there's a lot of thoughts that come to mind when you hear the word elder. So I guess I should open it up for a question there. When you hear the word elder, what generally comes to mind when you hear that word? Older, right? So I think many of us come with this preconceived idea of what an elder is, right? We have a concept of a senior citizen typically used in most cultures to refer to an elder. So I think our, our goal today is really to, it, along with our, our notions of this idea of elder um, and, and deacons, is have a more biblical, uh, refined view of what scripture has to say on this topic of elders and deacons. Now, I'm humbled to be able to present on this topic today to you, uh, considering that I myself have been a fairly recent elder, but uh, by God's grace, the church is full of wise brothers uh, who, who have uh, spent a lot of time thinking about this, this topic. So as a guide for our study today, uh, we, we rely heavily on a, a book uh, produced by Nine Marks and written by the author Thabiti M. Anyabwile. He's a pastor uh, at uh, Anacostia River. So the, the book is called Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. So I would commend this book to you. But uh, we're, we're going to kind of talk through what scripture has to say about the, the role of elders and deacons and cover some of, some of the key points on this. So in your handout, the way we're going to approach this is uh, on several themes we're going to look at. Uh, first is the etymology. So we want to always try to understand how does the Bible use this word, uh, whether it's the elder or deacon. We want to kind of get to the historical origin of the word. And we're going to look at the purpose and the nature of eldership. Uh, we're also going to consider what are the types of elderships that exist. Uh, we'll, we'll also, number four there, I, I missed a word there, should be really what is the Bible's prescription of church government? You know, we, we, when we talk about all these different types of uh, forms of eldership, what, what, what does the Bible actually say when it comes to this topic? Then we want to look at what does the Bible say about elder qualifications? What does it mean to be qualified as an elder? And then what the elders do? What is the role of elders? Then we will continue this, this uh, approach with deacons. We want to look at how the Bible refers to deacons, their purpose, uh, qualifications, and their role. So I pray that this will be an edifying time as we consider God's word on this. So to really begin our, our uh, study here, I think it would be helpful to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's say verses 1 through 7. So when you have that, why don't we turn there and, and read that. First Timothy three, verses one through seven. Thank you, Mercury. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above approach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Amen. Thank you, brother. So, so we just read about elders, right? And elders is one of the two offices that we see mentioned in scripture. You've got elders and you have deacons. So as we turn our attention first to these qualifications, these, uh, this topic of elders, we're going to first, as, as we started off, consider what it is to be an elder. And so in your handout, you see this, uh, this word, the origin of this word is, is from the Greek, right? And uh, you have to bear with me because I've listened to three different pronunciations of this word, and I still don't know how you pronounce it, but it's uh, presbuteros, I think, is, is the Greek word. Um, and, and a definition of this word is, it just basically means elder, right? So in our common parlance or our culture, we're used to that word elder in terms of, you know, an older person in most cultures or a senior citizen. But we see that in, in the historical usage of this word in the Jewish and Roman culture, this word could, depending on the context, it could mean an older person, but it could also mean an office holder, right? So historically, an elder was used to refer to mayors or council members, and in some contexts, older senior citizens. So, so you know, we, we really want to have a biblical understanding of how to use this word as we talk about it, okay? Any questions on that so far? All right, so having understood the, the backdrop of, of how this word is in, introduced, let's consider now the purpose and nature of eldership. Um, so one might ask the question, you know, if, if this word was used in the context of Jewish or Roman culture, how did it make its way into the church? How did we go about coming up with this idea of, of eldership, right? Or more specifically, if eldership in Jewish and Roman context was about governance and government, where do we get this idea of introducing government into the church, right? Um, I think most of us are familiar with the need for government in the state, right? You have, you have the state and then you have the church. And in the state, you know, we, we can be more familiar with the fact that there are fallen, this is a fallen world. There is a need to um, restrain evil, to to carry out the authority of God as we, we see spoken about in Romans. Um, but, but how does this idea translate into the church, right? And again, many of us are familiar with, uh, say, a quote by Alexander Hamilton, who was one of the, the founders of, of this country, where he would say that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But, so in the context of the state, we understand that government is because of fallen nature. But, but how does that translate into the church? So I think many of us would be less familiar about the need for government. So, so it's important to understand how this idea of local church government uh, made its way into the church. 
And in order to understand this, I would say if we could turn to Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. And then if someone else would get 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Go ahead when you have it. Thank you, sister. So, so the operative word there is the pattern, right? So the context of Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, is, is that God is revealing this tabernacle to Moses, right? He's, he's, he's very clear about the specifications for his tabernacle, the very dwelling place of God. And so th this principle that God gives to Moses is, I care about the pattern in which you conduct your worship around me. I care about this pattern, right? So, so we started with this idea of, you know, why are we taking government into the church? Aren't we all led by the Spirit? Don't we all have the same Holy Spirit, which we do, but if, if we're not the state and it's, it's not about, you know, just restraining evil, why should this idea come into the, to, to the local church? Well, one reason, as we see in Exodus, is that God has a pattern for everything. God has, has his word, and as people of the book, as people of God, we care about his pattern and his order for our lives as Christians. Does someone else have 1 Timothy 5, verse 17? First Timothy 5, verse 17. Hmm. Excellent. Thank you, Dean. Let the elders that rule well be counted of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So did anyone catch the operative word in this particular verse as it relates to elders and deacons? How about the word rule, right? This introduces this idea of authority, right? So we're not just coming up, this is not an idea that's created out of men's own you know, creation. This is, this is very much rooted in the word of God, it's rooted in scripture. So first we see that there's a pattern, even in the Old Testament, that, that we are to observe when it comes to God's word, and then we're seeing it in the New Testament that there's, there's this need for ruler, ruling within the church, right? Um, another, other passages will talk about obedience, or uh, we see in Hebrews uh, 13, for example, that, that elders or the congregation should Obey their leaders. And so what that introduces again is this idea of biblical authority that's, ruled, that's uh, called for in scripture. Now I think in our culture, most of us, you know, sense this culture that kind of resists this idea of authority, right? It's increasingly there's, we kind of recoil at the idea of, of authority. And maybe part of the reason for that is this, the examples we've seen of authority sometimes being abused, right? 
And so, so while there is authority and there's government in the church, we're also to understand that church government or lo local church government is not to be like authority or government elsewhere. It's, it's to be distinct, it's to be unique, okay? Um, you know, we have it in, the, in your handout, that first passage there at the top of your handout is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. It says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, right? So we see a very marked difference between the way leaders in God's church, those who would govern and rule over his flock, are to govern. And, and how does it say they are to do so? It's there in verse 3. Not domineering, right? And, and so we see this throughout Scripture that, that, yes, there is government, but it's a different kind of government. It's a government that's ordained by, just as all government is ordained by God, but it's a government for God's church that, that should look different to the world, that a watching world can look at that leadership, that type of government, and say, this is what God is like. You know, that's, that's the aim. And so we also see, again, that, that this call to be separate and set apart from the way the world does its affairs, we see it again in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 to 26, and I'll read it. It says, when a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded the greatest, and he, Christ, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. And those in authority over them are called uh, benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And I have a typo there. <laughs> so, so, you know, we see that there's a, a difference in, in our concept of leadership right from the get-go, right? So, so there's government and there's a type of leadership that God calls his, his elders to, his church leaders to. I remember in one sermon when I, was a, when I was a member at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I remember Mark Dever uh, teaching through, I think it was 2 Samuel, and, and he came to this idea of leadership, what, what godly and biblical leadership looks like. And then he asked this question, he said, you know, what's, what's this pivotal verse that describes biblical leadership? Anyone want to guess or throw out any suggestions as to a passage that, that you know of that, that is the verse to look to for leadership or, or that characterizes leadership? Was there one? Okay, washing, washing the, uh, the apostles or the disciples' feet is a great example. But let's try 2 Samuel 23, verse 2 to 4. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2 to 4. Just to kind of get an idea of this this character of biblical leadership that's, that's being described here, okay? And so when we get there, in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2 to 4, it says, this is David speaking, he says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The, the rock of Israel has said to me, 
when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Just think about that. You know, have you seen that type of leadership? Is, is, is that the type of leadership that, that you want over you, right? I think, I think God is calling us to, to have a, a vision of God-honoring, God-exalting, God-glorifying leadership. And this is what elders, this is what the eldership is called to. Jesus would have his church, remembering that his church, those who are cared for and, and, and uh, whom, on whom ex- authority is exercised over, belong to the Lord. And so in other places, we'll see elders, not only called elders, but they'll be called overseers or they'll be called under-shepherds, right? First Peter being a, a notable example. And it's, it's this recognition that we are under-shepherds, those who are elders, but there's a chief shepherd, right? And that he will one day appear, and we are just, we're just under-shepherds to, to, to carry out his work. So to, to close that point, the leadership of the elders to be distinct so that a watching world can look at this and say, this is what God is like, right? Any questions on this point as we move on? Any thoughts? All right, so this brings us to our, um, to our next point, which is about uh, types of church governments, right? And it kind of introduces this idea. So, so in college, I was a government or a political science major, and, and one of those words I had to be introduced to was this word polity. Anyone know what, what we mean by that? Heard that word before? <laughs> what is it? Okay, centralized leadership or leadership structures. Well, specifically, um, I guess the, the formal definition is it's a form of government. Okay, it's a form of government. It's, it's our structure. How do we order our, our lives around our, our system of, of order in a congregation, right? And so what we find is that they're just empirically observing different churches and, and, and uh, congregations, you see that there, there's several examples of this, right? One form you, you may have, and, and uh, Pastor John Henderson was helpful to, to, to help me uh, expand this list a little bit. You know, one, one of the things we can find sometimes is, is congregations that have this idea of eldership as being unnecessary, right? Um, just as we address this, this need to understand why the eldership exists, it's, it's as we pointed back to Exodus, that there's a pattern in scripture. And so some have not understood this from the scripture, and so they, they might say no church government is necessary at all, right? And so to avoid this, this form of hierarchy in the church, that we're, we're all on the same, you know, the same level, which obviously in God's eyes, we, everyone has equal value in God's eyes, but but within our corporate worship, within decision-making, within how we, we, we promote unity as a church. You know, scripture speaks about eldership, but there will be some congregations that will say it's not necessary to have a, a formal structure. Therefore, they will meet in homes or um, not really have a formal leader, right? So what's the problem with that type of uh, polity or form of government? What, what might be one of the problems with that? Anyone have a thought? Mark? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. It's, it's, it's not biblical in that sense, right? Eric? Excellent. Yeah, and, and we're gonna yeah we're gonna see that more as we as we go through the study here. So so those are excellent reasons. Um, yes. Yeah, and, 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 and to, to, to what Merck said to that point is we don't see that in Scripture at all, right? To not have any kind of oversight. And, and along with that, I think one of the dangers there as well is in any group, whether that's in the workplace or just informally, a leader, a leader tends to emerge, right? Someone will run it. Whether formally or informally, there's going to be someone who emerges as the leader. And so the question becomes what type of leader or leadership forms or emerges in that case. And so, so your points are, are right, right, you know, they're, they're right on point. Um, because we want to see a biblical leadership emerge, right? So besides no church government, um, another style we see or, or type of hierarchy we see is this one called a corporate hierarchy, right? Most of us are familiar with a corporate hierarchy if you work in the, in the workplace. Um, typical organizational chart where there's a head of the organization of the corporation uh, but, but, and everyone is, is reporting up to that head. You know, so so this, in, in that sense, authority or final authority, final decision making, this, this idea of the buck stops here ends with, with the pastor, kind of a CEO overseeing everything. Okay? Now, from an accountability standpoint, how, how does that model work? Right, uh, when we're, we're exhorted in scripture about verses like Jeremiah 17:9, that the, the heart is desperately weak, wicked, who can know it? You know, do, do, do I, as an elder, want that type of account, lack of accountability being the sole decision maker over the affairs of God's church? Yeah, th there's a danger there, right? I, I think it's, it's pretty evident that there's a danger there. But there are other types that we see that may be a little bit more common besides the no, no structure or no church government or corporate hierarchy. And it's these other types, right? Um, there's one called the Episcopal hierarchy and the Presbyterian hierarchy, right? We're familiar with this word. Like we said, uh, an elder historically comes from that word presbyteros, however you pronounce that. Uh, and, and it just means elder, right? And so, so you can kind of see that there. Now, the Episcopal hierarchy, and, and I'm not going to dive in too much depth here, it's, the idea is that there's a male head, and then you have archbishops and then the congregation. So, so that, that's kind of the order of, of authority, right? There's a male head, there's archbishops and the congregation. The, the Presbyterian uh, model, shall we say, of, of church government or polity is Christ is at the head, Christ is at the head, and you have elders. Now, these elders can be extra local. 
right? What we mean by that is they don't have to be part of that same local congregation. They can be outside that local congregation overseeing the congregation. And then being overseen by the elders is the congregation, right? Now, th these are kind of the main types I think you, would, you will see uh, just empirically, just by observation. Now, what we want to get to, not, not to say too much more on those, what we want to get to is a biblical, biblical prescription of church government, right? We're people of the book, so we want to be people of the book, and we want to follow the pattern that God sets. So, so we see in God's words that his word is central to all we do. And so since we care about his commands in all of life, this pertains also to the eldership, right? Uh, so we talk about Exodus 25, verse 40. Um, and then again, we see in Matthew 16, verse 18, right? Christ says to Peter, he says, and I tell you, our Peter, on, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think there, in this context, the operative word is that Christ will build his church. Just as we saw in Exodus that the pattern was already set by God. He gave the blueprint. He said, all you have to do is follow the pattern that I set. I will build my church. And so it is with us that we don't want to come up with our own forms of polity, even in the New Testament church. We want to be biblical and put the word at the center of all the affairs of life, right? And so, so what we see from a biblical standpoint um, about polity is, is we, see, we see this model. We already talked about um, Christ saying that he will build his church. So, so right from the get-go, Christ is the head of his church, right? We see that God is the head of his church. And then there are other patterns that we see. You know, we see ordinances like the Lord's Supper, right? Um, where, where we see with, with uh, the Apostle Paul with, with um, the instructions about the Lord's Supper, what does he say? He says, for, for I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. What I receive from the Lord, here's the pattern, and, and I'm passing on to faithful men. So it's important to follow a pattern. And so according to scripture, the, the biblical form of government would resemble something more like this, right? Where Christ is at the head of his church, and he is given under shepherds, overseers, to care and shepherd the flock well. Now, now what we aim for as, as, a, biblical, as a biblical church is not just um, having elders, but you know, we want to have Christ at the head. We want to have local elders and then the congregation. And why is this the case? What did we just say was the reason for that? What's the reason for this approach? It's what we see in scripture, right? It's, it's, it's the pattern that we see in scripture. Um, and so, any questions about that so far? All right, and so... Absolutely. So in some ways, when we read the scriptures, there's just some letters Paul's going to write to men who are pastors and elders. Sometimes he's going to write specifically to congregations right. to deal with false teachers. Yep. To deal with those that are. And so, so it's 
Christ part is clear, and then there's elders overseeing, mm-hmm. and also we would say the congregation has a substantial, significant role. Absolutely. In the, in the, just the health and overseeing and accountability of the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you so more. And so, so, so to that point, and that's actually an excellent segue as we, as we continue to look at this, um, while this is the model we see in Scripture, as, as you flesh that out, there, there's even more that Scripture says as to what this looks like, right? What, how this is lived out. Um, and so, so we're going to talk about that exactly. So just looking at the, the elders, one of the patterns we see biblically is, is that there needs to be a plurality or team of elders, right? So would someone turn to Proverbs 11, verse 14? And can someone else turn to Proverbs 15, verse 22? And then why don't we also look at Proverbs 24, verse 6? So I'll repeat those. It was a lot to throw at you. So Proverbs 11, verse 14. Someone can get that. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counsel is there safety. Excellent. So do you see that point there? an abundance of counselors. It's not, one person is not enough to do the job, to do the job well and safely, right? Who has Proverbs 15, verse 22? Many advisors. So, so we've seen this pattern, this theme of, of a plurality of, of wise counsel, okay? Uh, Proverbs 24, verse six. Yeah. So, so do we see a pattern here? <laughs> right? There's clearly a, a scriptural in, incentive and wisdom to exhort us not to lean and be overly confident in our own wisdom, but to seek wise counsel. There's safety there, the Bible says. Okay? Um, and so continuing on with this idea, and this goes back to what, what Pastor John Henderson was saying, is that while we've looked at elders and the need for plurality of elders, there's also a role, a very important role for the congregation. And we see this in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 15 to 17, where you see uh, personal disputes. The pattern, again, the pattern we see for personal disputes is Christ directing us to, to, to bring the congregation into those disputes. Uh, and then someone want to just take a look at that real quick. Uh, Matthew, 8, Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. So we see the, co- the congregation has an important role in, in church government when personal disputes occur. But we also see that in discipline, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Paul exhorts the congregation, not the elders, to expel a man who is caught in unrepentant sin. Right? So, so that goes back to what Pastor John was saying, that you have the congregation playing a form of government here. So it's Christ, it's the elders, and it's the congregation, it's the local elders, and it's the congregation that are involved in government. Does that make sense? Uh, so who had Matthew 15, or 18, verse 15 and 17? Be to you as a Gentile and a tax 
Excellent. Thank you, Gretchen. So we see this is why we practice a, a particular form of church discipline when, when it comes to these matters. This is why we will, we will follow the pattern of scripture when it comes to discipline that the elders will not simply make the decision on their own. This is a matter that we see modeled in scripture for the congregation. So any questions about this idea of polity or, or comments? Russell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. Excellent. We see that in um, in Acts chapter fourteen, verse twenty-three, and chapter sixteen, verse four, uh, twenty, verse seventeen. He's he's going around and he's he's appointing men, a plurality plurality of elders in all of these churches. Um, and, and, and all of that is, is to foster church unity as well. So great point. Any other comments? I've always been astounded by the inactivity when Paul submits to elders. Mm. Like the, the dispute at Antioch about circumcision and, and their fierce debate between him and Barnabas and the Judaizers. And then the elders of the church decided to send them to Jerusalem mm. to hear from the elders there. And then Paul didn't like fly an apostle car. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 But rather, he actually submits himself. You know, you're the elders of this church, mm-hmm. and so you want us to go do this. That's right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent point. Any other comments? All right. So I think we can move on then to the next point. So, so having established that the eldership and uh, church government is is an idea rooted in Scripture. It's not. The, the idea of men, um, let's, let's then consider what the scripture have to say about the qualifications of an elder, you know, one who is an elder. And we said an elder, in, in this context, is speaking about an office of leadership, of church leadership specifically. Um, and the first thing we see is in, in this passage that we read, we can just kind of walk through the qualifications, again, the pattern, the prescription that's been set up for us. We have the blueprint, and so we can just Look at the job description that God has laid out for us and not come up with our own qualifications, right? One of the first things we see is in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Uh, Paul says, this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, right? And there are two things that kind of jump out there. Well, first, I see if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. And then he says he desires a noble task, Right? So what makes the task noble is that it's the privilege. It's the opportunity to shepherd God's flock. It's a privilege and opportunity to, to be charged with caring for the ones that God, that, that God calls his own. Right? So, so that's a noble task. And, and then I, I, I guess the other thing that jumps out here is if anyone desires or if anyone aspires to this office, probably the most important question there is a desire for what? Right? It's the desire for the office of eldership. It's the office of leadership. And so as we talked about earlier, it was really important to understand what the Bible describes as leadership. In the world's eyes, leadership is that CEO command structure. Right? It's a top-down, the buck stops here type of structure. We, our natural inclination is to be greedy for power. It's, it's, to, it's to tell others exactly what to do and domineer over, the, over them. But as we read earlier, 
Not so with God's leaders, not so with God's church. The greatest among you must be the servant of all, right? And so, so our idea of leadership is, is service, right? Is, 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 that, is that novel for anyone, right? It, 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 it's peculiar in a, in a broken world. Leadership is service. You know, so, so many of us, or, or many men, I'm sorry, go ahead. The sacrifice, yep. Mm-hmm. You want to share more on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's sacrifice inherent in serving others. Um, and, and so, so I think it's really important to understand that because it is possible for one to approach the office of elder and say, hey, well, you know, this is power. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in there and have all this authority and power. But, but Christ immediately leveled that and said, you know, this is not what I call leadership for my church. This is not the type of leadership I call for my church. The leadership of my church is sacrificing. It's serving. It's, it's the, the greatest among you. Be, it, the one who seeks to be greatest is the one who, who's the least among you, who serves the most, who, who serves and cares for, um, for the most, right? Um, and so, so we see that if, if one is then having a desire for power and domineering over God's church, that person is not qualified to be an elder, right? And so, so the desire for what if, if one aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. You know, Paul, Paul wants to get that very clear right off the, the bat. You, know, you may have an idea of what eldership looks like, but if you, have, if, if you really have a desire, here's what it is. And he's going to walk through all of these qualifications. It's a noble task. It's a self-sacrificing task. It's a God-honoring, God-exalting task, and it points to him as that leader. Okay? So... I know when, when I was being con- considered by the congregation as an, as an elder and um, when I was considering myself in terms of my qualifications, I really struggled with the idea of, of desire, right? Um, again, when you consider ge- warnings like Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, um, you know, it says things like that, that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, it's really important to examine our, ourselves and examine our motives. Is, is there a desire for for greed or power or, or ungodly traits in, in this office. And so it's really important to consider that. But, but as I studied scripture and I understood the idea of what d- the desire that God is referencing here, and it takes the focus off the man, off the person, and you look at the office that God is calling one to, it, it becomes a little clearer. It's a call to serve. So, so, so one may not see themselves first as like, oh, you know, look at this flock. I can lead them. I, sh- I, should, I should be in charge of them. I'm not going to say that to myself. Most men will not say that. Uh, mo- most godly men would not say, hey, I think I should lead this, this bunch here. I don't think most of us would say that. Uh, but, but, but when you see it in the, in, not from the, the perspective of, of the man, but the office of service, I think many men can see the desire to serve the Lord. And so it's really important to understand desire there. Any questions about that? <laughs> so ne- next, next, next point, yeah, agrees, I guess. So the next point is on um, above reproach. And we see this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 2. It's in, this, you know, it's, it's in the same verses that we see this qualification. It says the elder must be above reproach. Now, let's, let's clarify here. What this is not saying is that the, the elder must be sinless. 
right? We, we know that's not what this is referring to. Uh, because we read in 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? So, so being above reproach is not to say you are sinless, but, but it, there's a life that's marked by repentance, there's, just as every Christian is called to. It should be a, mark, a life that is marked by, by becoming more and more conform to the image of Christ. It's a life marked by sanctification. And so, so to the question of, is this person, if we're considering someone for the office of elder, is this person above reproach, one might ask the question, would one be surprised to find out that this person is an elder or is being considered as an elder, right? So it shouldn't be so shocking that this person is, is, is a Christian, Right, um, and I think I think that's kind of what Paul is getting to the idea of being above reproach. There's not justifiable or founded evidence to say, okay, there's some there's some some lack of witness of Christian life here. Does that make sense? Um, and so we should move on to the next point, um, where it says that it, the elder should be a husband of one wife. Again, God has provided the blueprint, and in His blueprint, there is no such thing as polygamy. There's no such thing as, as, you know, marital infidelity, okay? First um, Timothy 3, verse 2 here, he's a husband of one wife. And, and, and another operative word is that he's a husband, okay? We see, again, a pattern that, that God's calling these men to leadership in his, in, in his church. That's the pattern that we find in the Bible, okay? So he's a husband of one wife. Um, not much more to say on that point. I, th I think it's, it's uh, self-explanatory there. Any, any other thoughts? Wait, you're not saying that uh, somebody who's not married should be given a husband first? So, so that's an excellent question. We don't see that in Scripture as, as one being not qualified. Think of Paul. The Apostle Paul was unmarried, and he would even say that I wish that others <laughs> were, would be as I am, to, to, more to glorify God, more to serve Christ, because, because of the, the time and the, the, the freedom that one would have to serve Christ. But, but if, if one is married, these are the traits and the, the, that should be exhibited as a husband of one wife. Um, but, but we certainly don't see a pattern that says a man who's unmarried cannot serve as an elder. Christ the head of his church, was also, you know, displayed that, that pattern. Uh, so, so let's move on to the next point and see that an elder should be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, okay? So an overseer, a pastor, should exhibit sober-mindedness, not, not one who's given to drunkenness, um, not one who is, is, is quick-tempered, quick-tempered or, or lashes out at, at, at any, any disagreement. So we find a sober-mindedness, a self-controlled and respectable uh, trait about this. Similarly, we see that an elder is to be hospitable, right? The Bible is clear about this. It says that he's to be hospitable. Now, we know there are different types of hospitality. The Lord has given us all different means and resources, so hospitality may not always look the same way. One of the most obvious ways of hospitality is, is opening up a, a person's home. You know, and I'm so encouraged by so many examples in this congregation, you know. I can just name names in this room, and, and I will. Eric Butterball, for example, and, and you know, J John Henderson, Mercury, all these elders, all of you, Ben Hamilton, all of you guys, you know, I've seen just be great examples that you model, model allowing and inviting other people into your home. 
you know? And so, so, but it's not only that. We can see traits of hospitality in someone who's, who's, hospital, who's hospitable in inviting others into their lives, hospitable in greeting others, serving those in needs, um, giving rides to, to folks to get to church. So, so th- these are traits that we want to look for in, um, in, in a biblical hospitality, okay? And so moving on, we, we then come to this idea of the, one of the most important roles of an elder that really distinguishes an elder from the other office of deacon, and it's that the elder must be able to teach, all right? So, so even the word disciple has roots in this, in this, uh, in, in this word discipline, right? There, there's a root of teaching and learning involved in, in the Christian life. We are disciples. Christ calls us to go and teach them to observe all that he has commanded. We see him call us to, to be teachers, to receive the word, um, training younger generations of men and women, Titus 2, verse 2 to 6. The, the Christian life is all about teaching and learning. And so elders must be people who are able to teach, not only able to teach, but also teachable, okay? Able to receive the word of God joyfully and to profit in their own lives as well, okay? Uh, for sake of time, we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving through. Um, sober, gentle, and peaceable. You know, we see that elders cannot be drunkard. That would be a disqualifier immediately. That one who is embattled by drunkenness, typically you'll see these other uh, sins following, and that's quarrelsomeness and, and greed or lovers of money. And, 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 and for those who would shepherd God's flock, they, they would not be able to, to glorify God in, in being drunkards because elders are called to be examples, examples to the flock. And so you need to be sober, gentle, and peaceable, not a lover of money. I think one of the ways you can see whether a person is a lover of money is just, just how they spend their money, right? Um, you know, sometimes, yes, there, there are debts that, that, that we incur in life, but, but what kind of debts are, are being incurred here? Is this, is this necessary debts like mortgages or, or maybe some student loans or, or things like that? Or, or are we looking at more consumer debts like that? with no control, no self-control, and just, just living uh, way beyond their means or beyond their means. Um, that, that, that's something to consider when you consider if, if this is a lover of money, right? Um, always, always chasing the latest fad rather than, than being content with what God would have. Manages household well. This, this speaks to the idea of you know, paying bills on time, being, being a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted. And then notice it says that it should be spiritually mature and humble. You know, we, we got to the idea of age. You know, should an elder be, be an old, older saint, right? We don't see that in scripture. You know, Jesus, when he started his public ministry, was 30. When he, when he, <laughs> When he ascended to heaven, he was 33, right? Uh, so you've got Christ, so we don't necessarily see that qualification. And this would have also, if age were just a factor, we would have just seen someone like Timothy um, not qualified to be an elder who's appointing other elders. Um, so, so I think when, when the scripture speaks about maturity, it's not talking about advancing years. We're talking about spiritual maturity. You know? and, and there's some Christians, praise God, who, who exhibit this at a very young age. And, and you know, Sadly, there are also cases we know of where, where age, being advanced in years, is not always equal spiritual maturity. And so the, the focus of maturity and humility here is spiritual maturity, and it's also um, 
one who can be humble and, and not consider, for example, every disagreement in opposition, being, being humble for, for, for growth, right? And the final point on, um, final point on this is, is being respected by others. You know, obviously the church is not going to hear, say, say claims against an elder or a prospective elder without reflection or discernment, but, but, if, but, but it's really important to consider also what this person's reputation is outside the church. Are they respected by outsiders? Would someone have a charge against this individual who is an elder or considered an elder? Okay. Um, and, and the role of the elders is to, is to pray. We, we hope in God. It's to guide the congregation. It's to, it's to feed the church. We see this clearly. All through, so many scriptures call to this. We're aware, elders are aware that there's, there's an enemy who wants to divide his, God's church. They're wolves, they're false teachers, they're, they're principalities and powers that we wrestle against, and we should not be embarrassed by the fact that Scripture calls these things out, you know, that, that they're false apostles, deceitful workmen. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 to 15, uh, that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, and so we're constantly guarding the flock against false teachings and those who would seek to deceive God's, God's people. Okay? Um, and, and I guess the, the final couple of things we consider here is that elders, we, we talked about having authority to command, right? So, so commanding introduces the idea of authority. Command these things. Don't, don't shy away of teaching the truth of God, because we have the authority of God to speak the things of God, right? So, so that's what elders do. They govern, they oversee, they command and teach. Um, and then the, the church's response to that is they obey their leaders and they submit to them. That, that is what we see in Hebrews 13, verse 17. And in all these things, Paul kind of closes it up to say, you know, practice these things. And that's the point that elders grow. The only way to grow is to do what? In, in any sport, in any area of life is what? It's practice. You've got to practice. You've got to train. And so he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. This is to get to the idea that every elder is not sinless. There's no elder who's sinless. There's no elder who is perfectly exhibiting all these traits. But, but in this office, we are called to grow in this office, grow in hospitality, grow in soberness, in, in hospitality, in, in all these areas that we're called to serve the office of, of elder. And so, so to, to point to the, the point of deacon, I know we're short in time here, um, and I'll save questions for the end here. The deacon, what we see is, is pretty much all that was described here earlier. So it was, it was nice to kind of focus on this and come to deacons because it, it's pretty much the same qualifications we see in scripture except for one, one distinction here. Deacons are not required to be able to teach. Now, that does not mean a deacon cannot teach, but, it, but, but from a pattern in scripture, deacons are not required to be able to teach. They're called, as all Christians are, to be hospitable, to, to uh, be sober-minded, not be given to drunkenness, but but their purpose is different, right? The Greek word for deacon comes from this word diakonos, right? That's a little easier to pronounce for me. Uh, it just means servant, right? It's one who serves. That's all the word means, servant. 
And, and we find that first, you know, both men and women can serve in this role. We see in Romans, uh, I believe it's chapter 16, verse, verse 1, uh, we see the Phoebe uh, is referred to as a servant or a deaconess. Uh, so this is, this, is, this is the pattern that we see in scripture in, in the roles of men and women serving in eldership or, or deacons. And so, so, so pretty much anyone in God's church who, who qualifies according to these traits can serve in the office of deacon. And the purpose and nature of deacons is really to serve, to, to free up the elders for teaching and, and, and loving the congregation and feeding the congregation while attending to the other matters of the church, right? And so we don't see a specific job description for deacons. We don't see that they are to do these specific ministries. Really, it's kind of an all-catching role where it's, it's really to serve any needs or any areas that, that the elders need serve help with, right? And so deacons also, to, to exhibit these traits that we talked about from in, in point three, uh, their qualifications specifically called out are there to be full of the spirit. They need to be sincere. They need to be sober and content. They need to hold the mystery of the faith. They too should, should be able to defend the faith, you know, hold the mystery of the faith. Um, and then we see that they need to be tested servant. They need to be tested first, right? So, so this is getting to the idea that they prove themselves blameless, not people who a case can be brought against with evidence that this is not someone who, who is who's exhibiting the witness of a Christian. Okay? So I know we went through those with, with the deacon qualifications. It's, it's, it's really the same as the elders. It's the same as pretty much any Christian. Um, so I want to try to leave time for just a, a couple of questions there. Any, any questions on this? Con- uh, so I kind of have a two-part question on, on elders. Mm-hmm. Subjective. Yeah. Right. Right. And and I think you you touched on a very important point. I think there's a there's a call for reflection and discernment with with both of those questions. Right. Um, it, it's a little bit more case by case basis. You know, um, there, there's a call for reflection and discernment, prayer and spiritual wisdom wisdom in these in these things. Right. Um, so I'm not going to say there's an objective measure or objective statement by which every congregation can use to determine the ratio of elders to congregation or the, the, the specific level of above reproachedness that, that exists, right? So, so what, what, what I would definitely say is, um, yeah, it's, it's a call for, for discernment, but, but one of the things that I would say, and, and I think Thabiti on your blue light would also say, is this idea of every man should desire to qualify as an elder because these, these traits, these, these spiritual characteristics are not just for elders, they're for all Christians. We're all called to exhibit these things. And so we should be ready to serve with a willing heart and, and pray that the Lord will grow our desire to be 
to, to exhibit this, this biblical leadership, these biblical examples, right? So elders in particular are called to be models and examples to the flock, but we're also called to be examples to one another, to exhort one another, to, to have a watching world look at us and say, this is what God is like, right? So I think that answers your, your question. And then as far as the ratio, I think it's, it's congregation specific. I think there's wisdom for the congregation and the elders to determine, um, uh, certainly another point in that is as a church grows, you, you wanna be proportional. You don't wanna have a disproportionate number of elders to the congregation. So if you have two members of your church, you probably don't need nine elders. If you have, you know, a thousand members, you probably don't need two elders. You, you want to be proportional, and, and that calls for discernment there. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think uh, uh, maybe a final point to that is it's one of the things you look for in a potential elder is are they already exhibiting some of these things, right? Maybe not everything. Not everyone has had the opportunity to, to teach, but, but you will seek in the congregation those who exhibit hospitality, those who are already counseling others, you know, these things that an elder does are serving. And so, so these kind of become kind of ready qualifications for, for eldership. Any final thoughts or comments? Chair. Um, I think it's probably helpful because we clarified earlier about with elders that the teaching is a primary aspect mm-hmm. of the role. Yep. You know, biblical example there, you know, the leadership there. But within deacons, that's not necessarily primary. Yep. So just want to highlight that. Exactly. For female deacons that were in family. Exactly. 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 Yeah, excellent point. Yeah, so it's not a requirement to be a deacon to, to teach. Um, it's, 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 not, it's not even a duty of a deacon to teach. It's to, to address those affairs to free up elders to teach. Um, so, so, so I think on that, that point, we can uh, end our time in prayer, and uh, we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, we just praise you for um, the, your wisdom, your your love for your church and giving faithful elders and and, and laying out the blueprint for how we are to to, to promote unity and love for one another. Uh, Father, we just ask that you would please help us to um, continue to look to you, to your word. Uh, We pray that as a congregation, as your your word calls us uh, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, as you call us to respond to, to those who you put in authority over us to obey and submit, um, making it a joy to serve, Lord, for us as, as a congregation. And for the elders, pray, Lord, that you would make in this congregation elders who daily grow and desire to grow in these areas and exhibit the, the, the characteristics that you call um, elders that, that have the effect of, of just, just a radiant glory um, that those who are, who are exercised authority over or who, who submit to their elders would just find joy in, in submitting to them, Lord. Lord, would you just grow your church in these ways and um, 
Help us to be a people that more and more reflect you in, in how we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.